All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. We got a terrific Friday morning show for you. It is our last show before the BC election. Tomorrow is general voting day in the election. We got great coverage and analysis for you today, the last day of campaigning. It is closing arguments here by the party leaders as they make the final pitch for your vote. Now, I really encourage you to exercise your franchise in this election. Hundreds of thousands of British Columbians have already voted by mail. If you have not voted, get out and vote tomorrow. We'll tell you how on the sh- on the show today. If you still need more information on that awesome election panel on the show today, it is the final skirmish here by our candidates panel: David Eby for the NDP, Peter Millobar for the Liberals, Adam Olson for the Greens. These guys have been with us through the whole campaign, and they'll duke it out here one more time on the show that is at the bottom of this hour so make sure you stick around for that so all that and lots more today on the show we got a great friday show for you first let's kick it off here now by talking about escalating gang violence in metro vancouver there's been a lot of gunfire this fall october the month of october in particular we've seen a rash of shootings have a listen to this sources have also revealed that a known gang associate lives close by and the senior may have been an innocent unintended victim we learned from uh, criminal intelligence experts that the network involved in this richmond shooting uh, the suspects that were targeted in this case are connected to an international gang a man carrying a baby in a car seat was targeted also with him was a woman and a three-year-old child Okay, lots of shootings going on and uh, escalating gang violence. What a great guest I've got to talk about this for you now. Doug Spencer, he's retired from the Vancouver Police Department. He is a gang expert. He specializes in talking to kids about gangs and keeping them out of that gang lifestyle. I'm very pleased to welcome him to the show. Doug, thanks a lot for coming on. No problem, Mike. Hey, Doug, can you comment on what's going on out there right now? I mean, we hear a lot of headlines. We see stories uh, quite frequently on shootings out there. I mean, it's been ever thus, I guess, in Metro Vancouver for a long time, but it just seems like lately there's been an uptick in violence. What are your thoughts on what's going on out there? Yeah, currently uh, it's kind of an all-out shoot-em-up thing. Um, You know, there used to be, back in the day when I was, in the gang unit, a little bit of honor among thieves, as it were. They all had their own little uh, drug lines and such that, you know, they ran and made their money or whatever. But uh, now with these young kids, it's just completely reckless. You know, they they shoot up people. You know, the shooting up in Kelowna at the casino there, there's a, a woman with her kid in a baby carriage right there. They don't care. They just let loose because right now they're currently hunting one another. Like you would hunt a deer in the forest. They're they're looking for the other, their enemies, uh, this bravado and whatever. But, you know, it's not good business. And it's extremely dangerous for the, the public out there, these guys, the way they're shooting one another up. Which are the Which are the main gangs that are in play here right now? Um... Well, you've, you've always got the Hells Angels kind of running the show. They're extremely organized gang, uh, organized crime. But the guys that put their drugs on the street are all these young gangs, these street gangs. And, you know, they, they don't really name themselves. They've learned over the years that you don't want to be associated to a gang when it comes to court. When I go in there and give expert evidence that this guy's a gang member, 
he's going to get a little more of a sentence and stuff. So, um, yeah, there's there's a gang out in Abbey that the Abbey police are dealing with uh, appropriately. Uh, there's gangs, like, all over the Lower Mainland. Doug, you work with young kids and keeping them out of gangs. Uh, I recommend your oddsquad.com website. You do a lot of presentations in, in schools. What is the main message that you give to kids out there? Yeah, the, the main message, you know, we bring them in. In, in some cases, we'll bring them right into our facility in Burnaby. Um, uh, we'll do judo with them, physical literacy. We'll, you know, kind of bond with the kids. We won't just fly in, speak to them, say no gangs, and run out the door. You're not really connecting to the kids. So, you know, we just try and show them the truth. When we sit down and talk about gangs and substance abuse and vaping and all this stuff, um, we give them the end of the road. We, we tell them where you end up. And there's just tens of thousands of cases that we could talk about where kids make the bad choice, right? The instant gratification, instant money. But, you know, we, we tell them it comes with a price tag, and that price tag could be your life. Speaking of Doug Spencer, he's a former member of the Vancouver Police Department gang unit. He now works with kids to keep them out of gangs. Doug, let's talk a little bit about some uh, more a recent notorious case that people might be familiar with, and that was the shooting of a Vancouver uh, transit cop. This happened back in January of 2019. People may remember this case. Thankfully, the officer who was shot that day, Constable Josh Harms, was uh, survived. The man who shot him uh, recently uh, found guilty in court on a number of charges, including inten- uh, intention of endangering the officer's life, reckless discharge of a firearm, possessing possessing a gun without a license, but very significantly found not guilty of attempted murder. Have a listen to this report here now in this notorious case here. This is uh, Global News reporter Aaron MacArthur. He was serving time for manslaughter after an incident at a Surrey McDonald's close to the Scott Road station. In prison, he took to the web looking for women to correspond with, and he was given statutory release last October. Still on parole, Glasgow now facing the possibility of more charges once the Surrey RCMP wrap up their investigation. I think that the public and the police officers involved breathe a sigh of relief, as I know I'm sure Constable Josh Harms does as well, to know that this individual has been caught. And Glasgow there, the man who shot that transit cop back in January of 2019, uh, found not guilty of attempted murder in this case. As you heard in that report, he was out on parole. He'd early been convicted in a manslaughter case. Doug, your your thoughts on this case? Yeah, I was just in complete disbelief, uh, frankly. It's such common sense, right? And that's kind of left the court, our justice system in the last 15 years or so um you know he's pointed a firearm at a at a person let alone a policeman and pulled the trigger twice yeah it, common sense and it, it's not like it's a did that happen there's witnesses and stuff it's on camera it, it's videoed him doing that common sense says when he pulls that trigger, he could kill somebody. He's already in jail for doing eight and a half years 
which is, again, a ludicrous sentence for murdering somebody with a firearm, right? And he's on statutory release, so he's let out a little early. He doesn't even finish the eight and a half years for taking somebody's life. It's not like it's an accidental shooting, a young guy that panics and the gun goes off. It's just common sense. That is attempt murder. So what the judge is thinking or how that judge got in that bench is beyond belief to me. Okay, the judge and in the case. Pro- the problem yeah. is, yeah. It, 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 that's not just one case. It, I, I can tell you, uh, I, I, I've talked about another case where a guy shot a guy. I ended up getting the case. I solved it. I charged the guy. And Crown let him plead guilty to common assault. The, the guy, the victim, has a colostomy bag now for the rest of his life. Wow. The bad guy didn't go to jail for one day. He got put on an ankle bracelet and sent home. Okay, speaking to Doug Spencer, he's a retired Vancouver Police Department gang uh, cop. Uh, Doug, it, the judge in this particular case um, of this uh, found not found this guy not guilty of attempted murder. Uh, the judge is Peter Galbrinsant, and he said in court that the shots never struck the officer in a vital part of his body. So the bolt, this, this cop was hit twice, once in the right arm, and the other bullet hit him in the left hand. Thankfully, he recovered. He also, the judge also said there was no background of animosity between the officers and the accused. I mean, what do you think of that judgment? Uh, it's ridiculous. Like, what is the guy supposed to be a, a target shooter? If he wanted to kill him, he would have shot him in the head. That's ridiculous because policemen who train and, and shoot and practice will hit the target. What we're shooting at, maybe 85, 90% on average. Yeah. That's standing there from 10 feet solid with your feet, not running around on a, a SkyTrain platform. So, you know, that comment is just absolutely over the top. But to say they had no previous animosity, the, Josh didn't know this guy. No policeman, very, very rarely, would know the person they're involved in a shooting with. Right. I'm pretty sure this the bad guy had animosity towards police in general with his, his past. So... To make that ruling, if Crown doesn't appeal that, they're complicit with it. That's ridiculous. All right, welcome back to the show as we continue talking about the 2019 shooting of Vancouver Transit Police Officer Josh Harms. It happened on January 30th, 2019. The man who pulled the trigger, Dan Glasgow, was charged with attempted murder. In that case, found not guilty by Judge Peter Gulbrunson in October 15th judgment. He said that even though this police officer was hit twice with bullets, he was hit once in the right arm, once in the left hand. Thankfully, he's, he survived the shooting. Found This guy found not guilty on attempted murder charge. My guest is f- retired gang uh, police officer Doug Spencer from the Vancouver Police Department. Um just taking a look at, at the, the reasons for judgment in, in this case, yeah, the, the judge here said that there was no evidence of making angry or threatening statements be, before the shooting, uh, that it was tricky to prove the case, that there was an intent to kill. I don't know. I, you know, the, the tr- Sergeant Clint Hampton from the Vancouver Transit Police said, 
He said, quote, I, I, it's hard to imagine how someone can point a gun at any person, fire the gun, hitting the officer twice, and not be found guilty of attempted murder. Uh, Doug, your, your thoughts. Are you expect an appeal in this case? Oh, most certainly. There's got to be an appeal. Yeah. You know, and, and it's not like police are more important than the citizens out there. We're all the same. So, you know, by but this guy shooting it and shooting a policeman twice. Yeah. If they shoot a policeman, they'll shoot anybody. So that's the, you know, society's got to be going, hey, I'm a little less safe out here now. They're not even charging guys with attempt murder when they shoot at police. It's ridiculous. Okay, let's take some phone calls here. Don on the line in Vancouver. Hi, Don. Hi. Um, you know, I'm just, you know, we live in a society, it just seems like we're trying to heal everybody. So we get a bad guy who does some bad things. Yeah, you know what? Somehow we can heal him. Maybe we can have a circle and, and you know, just uh, talk about our emotions. Some people are, are mentally flawed right from the get-go. And we have to deal with them. And I think as a society, we have to say, hey, enough's enough. We have to get rid of these people off of society and find them another place, or you know, okay. then we bring back the death sentence. Maybe. Okay. Well. Well. Okay. Well, this guy is going to jail because he was found guilty on other charges, including reckless discharge of a firearm, possessing a gun without a license. Of course, the gun was illegal. Firing a gun with the intention of endangering the officer's life. He was found guilty on that. Uh, sentencing coming up in in December. So this guy will go to jail. But he, I guess he would have gone to jail longer, Doug, if he had been found guilty in attempt murder. Of course, your thoughts? Yeah, it's certainly it's an indictable offense. So you, you would think he'd get a really substantial sentence given his background of shooting and murdering somebody else. Oh, manslaughter in that case. Manslaughter. You know, yeah, ex- exactly. The you know the caller's right. There are people out there that are uh, suffering from mental illness, whether that's from drug abuse, substance abuse, whatever. So when they put these guys, give them little sentences, and they put them back out in the street, and for example, they're still addicted to drugs or they still have mental issues, you are doing them no favors. Right, you're, you're supposed to rehabilitate people when they go inside. If they've got a drug addiction issue, yeah, make them not addicted anymore. Give them mental health. But they they seem to just revolving door. They want to kick them back out on the street. They're doing these bad guys no favors, and certainly no favors to society. Let's squeeze in one more call. Uh, Mason calling from Chilliwack. You got to go quick, Mason. Okay, I just kind of wanted um, uh, the view from a police officer's perspective. Um, as, as far as why we're not getting tougher, like people think these, these you know, people in gangs are dumb or they're punks. They're, they're actually really smart. They know how to play the system. They know their 50th copy steal is going to get penalized the same as their second or, or whatnot. Okay. Right? So, okay, Doug Spencer, why are we not getting tougher? 30 seconds. Yeah, I, I just don't get it. it. It continues. It's getting worse and worse from when I was doing the work. Um, there's no account- accountability to judges. In the states, you get voted in. Yeah. And if you don't do your job, you get voted out. Okay. Uh, you know, that's the way it is. There, Doug, there's no Doug, thank accountability you. for the judges. Doug, it was great to have you on here again. I look forward to you being on the show again. Thank you for coming on. Thanks, Mike. 
All right, welcome back to the show. Tomorrow is general voting day in the B.C. election. Time to assemble our candidates panel for one last go here. And I really appreciate their time today. On the line, we got Peter Millibar. He is the liberal candidate seeking re-election in Kamloops, North Thompson. Peter, thanks for coming on again. Absolutely. Always a good time, Mike. All right, appreciate it. David Eby on the line uh, seeking re-election for the NDP in Vancouver Point. Great. David, thanks for doing this. Good morning, Mike. Good morning to you. Adam Olson is the Green Party candidate looking for re-election in Saanich, North in the Islands. Adam, welcome. Morning, Mike, David, and Peter. Okay, guys, thanks a lot for doing this. First of all, let's talk about the final 24 hours of this election campaign, less than that now, and some of the key promises that have been made during this campaign. And Peter, I want to go to you first. And here is a, a key promise that Andrew Wilkinson, the liberal leader, made here to break up ICBC's monopoly. We've talked a lot about this on the show for the past month. Here's Wilkinson. Today we're announcing that a BC Liberal government will remove the monopoly for ICBC. Okay, this seems, it seems to be popular with a lot of people, especially people calling this show, but Peter Millibar, I don't see it reflected in the opinion polls. Every single poll I look at shows you guys way behind. What happened? How come people aren't picking up on this? Well, I guess tomorrow we'll find out how, uh, you know, whether it becomes a ballot question or not. Uh, certainly it's, it's one of the key differentiation points between ourselves, uh, the NDP and the Green Party. We're, we're the only party saying that ICBC should be uh, opened up to competition. We're not saying get rid of ICBC completely. We're saying let it compete, give people choice, give people options, uh, and let them, uh, uh, buy the insurance product that fits best for them from the company that they want to, uh, purchase it from. Right. David Eby, what are you hearing from voters on this? Well, you know, understandably, Mike, uh, people are skeptical about car insurance and that anything will reduce their rates. Uh, I understand people's frustration about ICBC and wanting to get rid of uh, ICBC. I totally get that. Uh, but we looked at privatization. We looked at reports issued by the private insurers that said that that would increase rates for everybody under the age of 35, and it would only show benefits for people over the age of 45. And we have a plan in place. Uh, the legislation's in place. It'll be delivered on May 1st a new insurance system for British Columbians that will reduce their rates by 20% on average or $400. And it's based on systems that are working in Manitoba and Saskatchewan. So, you know, I, 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 can, I can tell you that people uh, want to see cheaper car insurance. Uh, they're not happy with ICBC. We think this new system will go a long way to address that. What do you, what do you say to the It just can't deliver it. Peter Millibar, what do you say to that? Well, that's why we made sure in our, our plan that we would uh, make sure that young drivers uh, had uh, some some. Uh, safe driving experience uh, credited to them so that they don't see the spikes up to the, the three five thousand dollar levels that we've been seeing across the province um, but uh, you know it really does come down to choice uh, we have choice when you go and place your home insurance uh, the government doesn't step in and do that um, and and we're saying that people should be able to have some choice as they uh, shop for their car insurance if icbc okay. is more competitive for some policies uh, people will still uh, use icbc Okay, I'll tell you what, it's been an interesting discussion in this campaign on the future of ICBC for sure. Here is another big uh, promise from the Liberal leader, and that's to scrap the PST for a year. Here's Wilkinson again. We need bold action. So the BC Liberal government will eliminate the provincial sales tax for a full year. In the second year, we'll reduce it to 3%. Okay, this was like the big enchilada promise here from the Liberals. Let me go to Adam Olson for the Greens. Adam, what did you think of that promise uh, to get rid of the PST for a year? 
I think it's been, you know, I, I haven't heard anybody other than the BC Liberal candidate in my riding thinks it's a good idea. I've had, a, I've heard a lot of uh, people uh, just watch, you know, a lot of head shaking and eye rolling about it. You know, and I think, I think it's, it's very similar to the, uh, to the ICBC piece, if I just may. I mean, I think throughout the entire summer, we hear the BC Liberals talking about strata insurance and got to get control of the private strata insurance and, and then, you know, in the next breath, they're talking about ICBC. It's, it's, the, the problem is, is that, you know, they're recycling old ideas that, uh, that don't work. And, um, and it's, it's fallen flat with British Columbians because I think they get it. And uh, hmm. the same thing goes with this PST. It's a, it's an, it's a recycled old idea that uh, proves that the BC Liberals don't have any ideas. Okay, Peter Millibar for the Liberals. I remember the day that Wilkinson rolled that big promise out to eliminate the PST for a year. Maybe it was the high watermark for the Liberals in this campaign. That's certainly a flashy promise does not seem to have caught on. I mean, that'd be an expensive promise, too. You guys would blow the budget to smithereens. I mean, what are you hearing from people on this promise? How come it's not working? Well, I, I'm hearing the exact opposite from Adam Olson, so maybe he should go talk to businesses and, and uh, other folks out there. It will impact everyone. It'll give everybody a bit of a break. It will help businesses lower their costs as well and stay in business, which keeps people employed, with, which keeps uh, personal income taxes coming into the coffers, so we can uh, lose government revenues through everyone being laid off and not paying uh, personal income tax. Or we can use the sales tax at about $700 million a month being injected into the economy over the course of a year uh, to have that continual bump versus the NDP, which says give everyone a household $1,000. It will certainly help people with credit card bills. It would help people uh, pick up a flat screen TV for their house. Uh, But after about three days, the economic boost is gone. Uh, Our plan is about a year, a full year of economic help. It's about making sure that uh, businesses can actually stay open and operate. And then we start to increase back uh, the tax again to start to get some of that revenue back okay. into coffers while being uh, very clear that we are not going to be cutting services uh, across any of the, the ministries. D- David Eby, your thoughts? I just don't understand why in a pandemic when people need help, uh, why you'd provide uh, the most help to the people who can spend the most money. The only way you benefit from this is if you're spending lots of money and then you're not paying PST. And if you're hurt by COVID, if you're unemployed, you're not spending money and you're spending money only on essentials, rent and groceries. And, and these things are exempt from PST. So, you know, it, it's hard for me to know uh, what the Liberals were thinking there. And it makes a lot more sense to me that you're uh, the NDP plan, of course, to provide support to people directly and to income test it mm-hmm. and to cut it off at a certain point. Uh, it, uh, it's a puzzle to me why you would base your recovery strategy on giving additional assistance to people who, frankly, don't need it. Peter Millibar, what do you say to that? Well, everyone agrees, uh, all economists agree, that a PSD is a regressive tax. The NDP uh, used to rail about uh, sales tax forever. Uh, now they're saying it doesn't actually help uh, ease the burden for, for low-income people. I suggest perhaps Mr. Eby has had a government-paid cell phone for a little too long because cell phone bills have PST on it. All sorts of household items have PST. Diapers have PST on them. Uh, so I think, uh, in fact, a great many households will start to realize those savings month after month after month. It'll be incremental every month to your household, but it will be a real savings that you actually see uh, and freeze up uh, the cost pressures at the same time on businesses for their inputs so that as they're purchasing okay. things to sell you, they're 7% cheaper for the business to supply you as well. All right, it's our candidates panel here. Peter Millibar for the Liberals, Adam Olson for the Greens, David Eby for the NDP. 
Adam, let's talk about one of the key promises here from your leader, Sonia Firstenau, leader of the Green Party. Here she is talking about a shorter work week. Sonia Firstenau. I'm proposing that the government undertake a consultation process with business, labour and other stakeholders to explore options for reduced week work weeks and flexible work hours. Okay, four-day work week. I don't know. It sounds good, Adam, but I don't know if, how any government can deliver that. Isn't that a private sector decision or a decision between an employer and their, and their employee? Um, certainly there are decisions that are made in the boardrooms about, uh, about the length of the work week, but I think that there are, as we've seen in other jurisdictions, uh, tools and incentives that the government can use to to have this conversation. I think what's really important to be focused on here is that, you know, the four-day work week has been what everyone's focused on. But let's talk about family and work-life balance. And I think that that's okay. uh, where I'm excited that our platform has focused on because as a, as a person with a young family, uh, I know the value of being able to be at, at home uh, with my with my kids and, and wife uh, at the end of the day to have uh, to have dinner with them and to spend that time. And I can tell you that my, my kids and my family really appreciate the opportunities to be together. And so I think that, you know, there's been a lot of there's been a lot of uh, conjecture around this uh, proposal that we've put. But I think what we really need to be having a conversation about is better work life balance. And, and uh, we've been seeing a movement towards that. It used to be a seven day work week, then a six day work week. And now I a five day work week. There's nothing sacred about the number of days. We just have to make sure that we're getting uh, good productivity we're seeing that with businesses that have made the decision and nonprofits to go to a shorter work week. Uh, but we also have to make sure that uh, the quality of life for British Columbians is there. And so that's the reason why we've made the commitment to, to have this conversation with the business community, the nonprofit community, okay. and uh, institutional uh, sector in our province. All right. Welcome back to our BC election coverage. Tomorrow is general voting day. It's our final candidates panel of the campaign. Peter Millobar for the Liberals, Adam Olson for the Green Party, David Eby for the NDP. All right, guys, we played some of the key promises there from Andrew Wilkinson, the Liberal leader. Also, Sonia Firstenau, the leader of the BC Green Party. Have a listen to John Horgan here. Now, I, I find it interesting what's happening in, in uh, Surrey, such a key political battleground in our province. Here's Horgan talking about building SkyTrain out to Langley. Horgan. That a re-elected NDP government will complete the Surrey to Langley SkyTrain route right here to Langley. That's $1.3 billion to make sure you're connected to the rest of the Lower Mainland. All right. Okay. Big promise uh, for transit in Surrey out to Langley for SkyTrain. David Eby, how are you guys going to pay for all this stuff? Uh, it's, uh, it's pretty clear, Mike, what we need right now, which is investment in job-creating infrastructure, and especially infrastructure that's going to reduce carbon pollution and help us meet our climate goals. So that's why things like SkyTrain are really important, including SkyTrain to, to Surrey. The platform is really clear how we're going to pay for this. It's uh, through uh, our usual capital investment uh, programs, but uh, really supercharged to respond to COVID and get jobs created for people to, to do work on good projects, $3 billion a year on infrastructure spending. Um, it's really important that we do this uh, for a number of reasons, uh, stimulate the economy, create jobs, create training opportunities for young people. Uh, there's uh, And it's a great project, SkyTrain, to make sure people can get around. Okay, you're not going to hit people with uh, mobility fees, are you, it, for on Metro Vancouver drivers, like charge drivers, congestion fees, or use of road fees, or anything like that, are you? No, that's BC Liberal work. We got rid of the tolls on the bridges, <laughs> and we uh, we canceled their 
plans to put tolls on the, the Massey Crossing as well. So uh, we're going ahead with, uh, with toll-free crossings for people. Those are BC Liberal ideas. Okay, no mobility pricing. Peter Millibar for the Liberals, you buying that? Well, no, and, and perhaps Mr. Eby should talk to Mr. Horgan, because Mr. Horgan certainly was not very emphatic about no mobility pricing or, or a host of other taxes and fees. And the interesting part is that uh, uh, SkyTrain to Langley was a good idea uh, when the, the SkyTrain uh, discussion started up with Surrey from LRT to SkyTrain, yet uh, miraculously the government had no interest in making sure that happened. Um, the jobs would have still been needed then. The training would have been needed then. Uh, and now, magically, uh, during an election, um, they, they've come up with this great idea to extend SkyTrain. So I think people uh, could have a, a fairly healthy dose of cynicism on this announcement. Uh, we've seen a lot of promises in Surrey, not a lot of delivery uh, from the NDP government uh, to this point. And, um, you know, everything, even even as something as simple as the Surrey RCMP referendum. On the one hand, the Premier says a pandemic election Never a bad time to check in with the public to see what they think. Uh, yet a referendum on, on something as significant as changing uh, the police structure in Surrey, he, he totally shuts the door to. So okay. I, he seems to pick and choose uh, when he wants to talk to the public or not. Okay, I'm curious, David Eby, as, as the Attorney General, your thoughts on that proposed referendum on policing in Surrey. Your thoughts? Oh, yeah, I'll speak as the, the BC NDP candidate and representative yeah. on this call. I mean, the Liberals love uh, referendums because they defer action and responsibility. And so action and responsibility on transit means actually building transit that people need. Um, and action and responsibility in terms of uh, how Surrey's police belongs squarely with the city of Surrey. So to have a referendum on something that is a city issue um, is, is a way to pretend in an election that that you can play both sides. Uh, it's an issue that belongs to the people of Surrey. Uh, Mr. Wilkinson wants to have a referendum about something that's a city issue in Surrey. And the Liberals have neglected Surrey for so long. Uh, it's our hope that the people of Surrey will support us because we are the party putting resources into Surrey, including um, a proposal for a new medical school that will really focus on getting those primary health care delivers, the nurses, the family doctors out to communities that we need so badly. It's a renaissance for Surrey uh, under the NDP, and frankly, the Liberals had 16 years to do something on Surrey. All right. All right. Rapidly out of, running out of time, sadly. Let me go back to Adam Olson for the Green Party. Adam, they call the final days of any election campaign the opportunity for closing arguments from the parties to try and woo those last-minute voters. What is your message here a day before the election to voters to, in order for them to get them to vote green? What do you want to say? Uh, is he there? Yeah, sorry. Okay, I'd like yeah. to res- respond to David and Peter's comments around transit. I, I yeah, sure, go ahead. David, that, that this investment needs to be made in, in transit. I think, though, that there needs to be a, a more forthright and honest conversation about how we're going to pay for these things. Absolutely. Your question was not answered. And the reality of it is, is as we move to zero emission vehicles with a, with a strong zero emission vehicle mandate and gas taxes start to decrease, we actually have a responsibility in government to have a mature conversation about how we're going to replace it. So to say that, to shift the conversation and say, oh, no, we're not going to have that conversation, then what are we talking about? How are we funding it? Your question is very, very viable, Mike, and it needs to be one that's not uh, deflected but answered. So the BC Greens have put forward a, a positive vision for this, uh, for an equitable province and for a sustainable province. Uh, our plan is resonating. You can see Asani Persno has done an incredible job over the, the uh, six weeks that she's been the leader of our political party. I'm hearing it on the street. People are incredibly supportive of the work that she's done and the work that we've done. And I look forward 
uh, to getting back into the legislature and doing the work as a legislator. Okay, Peter, Peter Millibar and, and David Eby, I'll give you guys the last word, 20 seconds each to wrap up with a final message for voters. Peter Millibar, go ahead. Well, I'd encourage everyone to take a quick look at the BC Liberal platform. It certainly is the only platform that speaks to all of BC, not just uh, Metro or not just uh, rural BC, but uh, but all regions have been taken into consideration. And it actually offers a very viable way forward uh, to move okay. us through this pandemic safely and responsibly. David Eby, you got 20 seconds here. Yeah, sure. I think people are aware that the BC NDP is a party committed to services that uh, they need during a pandemic. It's a good platform for seniors. Uh, for long-term care, for support in their homes, 7,000 healthcare workers. Uh, if people are concerned about COVID and making sure that we uh, continue to maintain a leadership right. role in North America, uh, I think the party choice is clear. We're about to go into a dark winter, a dark winter, and he has no clear plan and there's no prospect that there's going to be a vaccine available for the majority of the American people before the middle of next year. President Trump, your reaction, he says you have no plan. I don't think we're going to have a dark winter at all. We're opening up our country. We've learned and studied and understand the disease, which we didn't at the beginning. All right. One of the key exchanges there last night in the Trump-Biden debate. It was the final debate of the U.S. presidential election campaign. President Donald Trump squaring off once again with Democratic rival Joe Biden. Very different type of debate last night compared to the first debate, which was almost unwatchable at times. It was so chaotic. Last night was a I think, much better debate in a lot of ways. Let's talk about it now with my guest, Professor Matthew Lebo, Professor and Department Chair of the Political Science Department, University of Western Ontario. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Matthew, thanks for coming on. Sure. What, what jumped out at you in that debate last night? Well, it was, uh, there was less yelling, and yeah. uh, the muting helped. Um, but, uh, you know, at lots of times as, as the debate wore on, uh, President Trump uh, sort of di- diverged from his talking points. Um, he's, he really wanted to hit Biden with this, uh, this story about uh, his son and then making money um, off of foreign entanglements. And there's, you know, no, no real basis for that. And it just sort of looks like the president is out of stuff to fling. And um, he's just sort of, you know, with, with less than two weeks to go, um, doesn't really have something to sell to the American people anymore. Yeah, no, it was interesting to hear Trump going after Biden about his son, Hunter Biden, the New York Post story about the Hunter Biden's laptop and the emails about his dealings in Ukraine. Did Joe Biden get some kind of cut of the action of some kind of pay-for-access scheme? And you're right, he Trump really did try to stick it to Biden on that. I'm wondering, though, if if that stuff resonates with uh, the voters that Trump needs to swing over to his side, because you know if you look on it's a trending story on on Facebook, and if you if you watch conserv watch uh, Fox News or conservative talk radio, you'll certainly hear a lot about Hunter Biden. But for for most undecided voters, I mean, is it just kind of gobbledygook? Like, I wonder if it was just going over people's heads if they even understand it. Well, there's so few undecided voters that yeah. they really. You know, first, Trump has to try to win them or he has to try and win people who are, you know, perhaps not voting or resigned to vote for for Biden. And I I don't know that he's he recognizes how different 2020 is from 2016. In the last few weeks of 2016, um, you know, he was he threw a lot of accusations at Hillary Clinton and, and the FBI director helped do that as well. 
but in that election, you had you know over 10% of people who hadn't made up their minds. And now Trump is the incumbent. People have seen him for, for four years. They have a pretty good idea whether they like him or not. And so yeah. it takes more than just throwing up your hands and saying, well, both sides may be dirty, so I don't know. I guess I'll just vote for Trump because I don't know what that'll be like. Maybe that'll be good. Nobody's doing that anymore. Yeah, I thought um, Trump had a better night last night than he did in the first debate. He certainly seemed to sort of dial it down a little bit on the aggressive attacks on, on Biden, and maybe that helped him. But I thought they both had some good moments. Let me play a couple here for you, Professor Lebo, get your take. Here is one where I thought Biden really has the, the upper hand on Trump, and that's with regard to the disclosure of their tax returns. And Biden pointing out he's released his tax returns why doesn't Trump release his tax returns? Here's that exchange. I have released all of my tax returns. 22 years. Go look at them. 22 years of my tax return. You have not released a single solitary year of your tax return. What are you hiding? Why are you unwilling? The foreign countries are paying you a lot. Russia's paying you a lot. China's paying you a lot. And your hotels and all your businesses all around the country, all around the world. And China's building a new road to a new ga- a, a, a golf course you have overseas. So what's going on here? Why don't release your tax return or stop talking about corruption? Yeah, I thought that that was a really strong point for Biden. I'm, I'm not sure why he doesn't make it more often about going after Trump and Trump refusing to disclose his tax returns. What are your thoughts on that as an effective line of attack for Biden there? I, I agree. It's, it's effective. And, uh, you know, again, Trump is trying the same tactic he used in 2016 to just say, well, I'm under audit, I can't share them. But it's been years and years of him saying, I will release them soon. Uh, And, you know, there's, he's he's about to be, uh, you know, past his last election. So uh, it's now or never. And that is a very easy and effective point for Biden to hit. Yeah, I think so, too. I thought it was probably one of his better moments of the night. Now, here's another one where I think that Biden maybe took a bit of a hit and some damage himself. And this is where you're going to hear Trump here challenging Biden about the oil and gas industry in the United States. Have a listen to this. Okay, I have one final question. Would he close down the oil industry? Would you close down the oil industry? I would transition from the oil industry, yes. Oh, I would transition. It is a big statement. Because I would stop. Why would you do that? Because the oil industry pollutes significantly okay that's trump saying to biden would you close down the oil industry and biden effectively answers yes he would transition away from oil the oil industry in the united states i mean oil and gas employs what like 10 million people in the united states and and a lot of critical swing seats that these guys are fighting over like pennsylvania and texas what did you think of that exchange professor lebo yeah, and that's why he, President Trump keeps bringing up fracking, too, because right. it's an important industry in Pennsylvania. You know, I think on that issue and on um, the Medicare for all uh, versus, you know, private health insurance, on both those issues, uh, Trump is, is kind of smart trying to divide the Democratic Party about Biden. You know, in, in 2016, it it looks like 25% of people who voted for Bernie Sanders in the primaries didn't vote for Hillary Clinton in the general election. And this year, uh, far, far fewer, uh, you know, lots of pretty much most Bernie Sanders supporters uh, will find their way to Biden, but trying to sort of get at that difference where Joe Biden is, 
is either disappointing the left of his party or disappointing the right of his party. Uh, You know, perhaps getting some of those people to not vote at all or to think about a third party candidate. You know, that's that's smart to try and peel off some of those voters. Um, And with with energy, uh, you know, that's a that's a, a place where just Biden cannot please everyone in his party at the same time with 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 one position. Yeah, I really thought that was probably the highlight of the night for Trump when when he got Biden to admit, make an admission there, a concession on, on oil and gas in the United States. I think Biden is is really vulnerable. I agree with you on the fracking issue. You know, Trump keeps sticking it to him on fracking, and Biden keeps saying, I will not shut down fracking, but he's been on the record about shutting down fracking, at least on federal land. So I think Biden's vulnerable there for sure. Um how about on this? Let's talk about the COVID-19 issue and the, and the pandemic, which, of course, is such a key one in this campaign. Trump's management of this crisis. Here is Trump last night blaming China for COVID. It's not my fault that it came here. It's China's fault. And you know what? It's not Joe's fault that it came here either. It's China's fault. OK, and here he is also talking about the search for a vaccine. He's, Trump says something interesting here about a, a COVID vaccine. You also said a vaccine will be coming within weeks. Yes. Is that a guarantee? Is, no, it's is not this... a guarantee, but it will be by the end of the year. But I think it has a good chance. There are two companies, I think, within a matter of weeks, and it will be distributed very quickly. Okay. I think Trump was hoping that vaccine would be out before the election. I think he tried to make that happen. I guess it didn't happen. Uh, your thoughts, Professor Lebo? You know, again, he, he likes to make big promises. Um, he's promised that he would have a health care plan uh, ready to replace Obamacare. Um, he's, he, he puts out these big promises and to promise that there'll be a vaccine. And he's just been president for too long for those promises to be taken at face value. And people have been hearing for, you know, seven months that we're turning the corner, that this will fade away like magic. It's going to disappear. And, you know, it, it I think to him it sounds good that he's selling um, a way out of COVID with, uh, um, you know, a vaccine or, or therapeutics and all this stuff. But, you know, the, the situation in the States has just been too bad with COVID for, for many people to believe that. Okay, I'm speaking to my guest, Matthew Lebo, professor of political science at the University of uh, Western Ontario. His book is Strategic Party Government, Why Winning Trump's Ideology. I thought it was interesting that the issue of immigration came up last night and there were really some really dramatic exchanges on this issue around separating children from their families at the U.S. border. We've got over 500 children, we're told, that they cannot locate their parents after they were separated after arriving uh, in the United States. Have a listen to this here. This is Trump last night on this issue. Okay, on Trump separating children from their families. Children are brought here by coyotes and lots of bad people, cartels, and they're brought here and they used to use them to get into our country. We now have as strong a border as we've ever had. We're over 400 miles of brand new wall. You see the numbers and we let people in, but they have to come in legally. Okay, Professor Lebo, your thoughts. Um, he, he does try to stir up a lot of anti immigrant sentiment. He's doing some of that there. Um, you know, being tough on the borders and build a wall, that was a big part of his previous campaign. Right. Uh, but, uh, and he's also, I guess, trying also to hit, to hit at Obama-Biden, who 
you know, they did a lot of uh, a lot of arrests as well um, on immigrants coming over the southern border. Uh, but but you know the the the, the stories on the human level of those children being separated from the parents, I think that that does really hurt him. And Biden sort of looking into the camera and talking about, you know, this isn't what, what the United States should be about. And, and I think Biden did say this, this is a crime. And he, ha- he doesn't say that about a lot of things, right? He's not, doesn't point it at, at Donald Trump a lot and say he's a criminal. But he, he referred to that as a crime. And I thought that was pretty significant. Thanks for coming on with your analysis today. You're welcome. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about Canada's economy now and lots going on in the world of business. Reports out this morning, the federal government planning a potential bailout of struggling airlines in Canada, Air Canada, WestJet, Air Transat. Could they be in line for a taxpayer-financed bailout? Also, check this out. Could we move to a system of rapid testing for COVID-19 at Canadian airports, replace the current 14-day quarantine requirement for returning travelers to Canada. So if you travel internationally, you return to Canada, you agree to take a rapid test COVID, you test negative, you're all good to go. You don't have to quarantine. That's an interesting idea. The airlines want it. They think it would help them get people back on planes and traveling again. Lots to talk about with my guest, Brian Borzakowski, very fine freelance journalist. His work is... Pretty much everywhere, NBC, New York Times, BBC, Wired Magazine, Globe and Mail, Money Sense, CTV. He's everywhere. Very pleased to welcome him back. Hey, Brian. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it a lot. Hey, Brian, let's start with uh, a story that was just in our newscast we just played right now, and that's uh, Le Chateau, iconic Canadian fashion retailer here, filing for creditor protection. That's a sad story for a lot of people, a lot of Canadians who shopped at this, uh, this uh, retailer over the years. What's going on there? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, partly another, uh, you know, another COVID casualty with uh, we've seen so lots of different companies now shut down or filed for uh, protections under the CCAA. Um, but uh, they're talking about now liquidating all their assets and closing other operations, 123 locations across Canada, 1,400 employees. I mean, the fact of the matter is, uh, people are not buying the clothes that Le Chateau is selling right now. I mean, nobody's going to work. Uh, they, they're a bit more upscale, a bit more fashion-focused. People aren't going to the bars. People aren't um, going out. So uh, they don't sell sweatpants and sweatshirts in the way that uh, some other places do, um, like Lululemon, which has done really well over, the, over, the, over COVID. So um, they're, having, they're struggling to make sales. Um, in the three-month period up until July 25th, they racked up just $14.7 million in sales. Um, that's down from $50 wow. million in the same period before. Um, they were struggling before. I mean, this, the company had some debts, um, and, and so they, they've had a, sort of an up-and-down uh, kind of life uh, or kind of ride throughout their history. So um, some of the businesses that we've seen that have shut down are ones that were struggling before and just couldn't kind of keep it going under the weight of COVID. So you can blame COVID. You can't only blame COVID, though. Um, but uh, certainly it's, uh, you know, it is that, another another iconic company that's just yeah. not able to make it through. Yeah, $14 million in sales. Wow, I didn't think they'd gone down that much. That's pretty low for a retail chain that had 123 locations across Canada, 900 yeah. employees, 
500 people at their head office in Quebec. Like you said, a pretty iconic Canadian retailer when you think about it. I'm not sure there's many malls in Canada that do not have a, a Le Chateau store. So, boy, that's that's kind of a sad day to see a Canadian retailer going going down like that. Like when you mentioned that they've obviously taken that big hit for COVID, and I, I thought you made a great point there about some of the high-end fashion that they're selling. But there's also, I mean, all brick-and-mortar retailers are struggling, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, they are. It's, 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 there's no way about it. I mean, just think about your own shopping habits. I mean, how many times have you been in the mall? Um, you know, this year compared to last, a lot less. I mean, I just went in the mall a couple weeks ago, um, and that may be the first time, you know, since March. And, and um, so that is a struggle because foot traffic's not coming in. In these stores that um, aren't sort of set up for e-commerce in the way some other ones are, um, you know, and Le Chateau sort of doesn't strike. Maybe, maybe people shop online for it. I, I personally haven't shopped at Le Chateau in a long time. It doesn't strike me as kind of the e-commerce giant, uh, you know, like yeah, Walmart might or some of these other places. And um, and so if you're not getting the foot traffic into the malls where a Le Chateau and other stores like uh, are, like Aldo, I just actually heard a talk from the Aldo CEO who talked about how much they're struggling because that, you know, high-end retail, they're in the same kind of high-end fashion just is not um, selling because people yeah. aren't coming into the malls and because people aren't going out. And, and so brick-and-mortar stores across the board are struggling. The ones that do have a great product, different product like Lululemon, who are tapping into the times and who um, have uh, you know, a good e-commerce presence are the ones that can survive. All right, speaking, my guest is Brian Borzakowski. Let's talk about Canadian airline industries here, Brian. And this is an interesting story in the Globe and Mail this morning saying the Justin Trudeau government is looking at an airline bailout package. Now, this is something that the airlines have been asking for for many months after COVID-19 hit. What's going on with this potential bailout? Well, it doesn't look like there's a ton of details yet, but you sort of felt like it was coming after WestJet pulled their uh, Atlantic Canada um, flights just last week, and Air Canada did a bunch of changes to their regional flights uh, a, a month ago. Um, and, you know, I wonder the bailout, if it's the right word, um, because it looks like, based on this article, that they might be offering low interest rate loans, a rollback of airport fees. Um, are they going to be investing directly in those companies, which to me kind of is more of a traditional bailout? That uh, is not clear, and I think that is something that people might have more issues with if they're trying to take an equity stake, um, you know, like we saw sort of in the bailouts of the auto sector of 2008. If they're offering them other financial supports, maybe that um, is something that people can get on board with and could help them through. I'm sure the government, I'm sure these companies would rather see direct injections of cash versus a low interest rate loan. Interest rates are already pretty low, but maybe these could be even lower. Um, they did say in this report that there are two stipulations um, for this government funding, whatever it may be. Money can't be used to pay airline executives, which I think is oh. reasonable. And okay. they're so no big raises. They can't use the money to give big raises for their well, CEOs. Uh, well, you know, that's the thing. It's like when, when, you, when you have an industry like airlines where demand, it's all about demand, supply and demand, and demand mm -hmm. is low. And so if you don't have people flying, even a bailout, if you put cash in, what are you going to do with that cash? They want them to, uh, to pick up the, to restart flights that they right. closed. Um, yeah. and, but even if they do that, you could be flying with you know, one or two people. You can't bring the people back. Right. You know, it's an interesting point that, yeah, the government's saying, well, look, if we give you this help, we give you these low interest loans or maybe some other assistance, that we want you to start flying again and, and restoring some of these, these routes and flights that have, that have been cut. But I guess you've also got to give people the confidence that it's safe to fly again. 
And and that's where I think it's interesting about these COVID this COVID nineteen rapid test system that's being talked about. And we've seen airports across Canada, some key ones, roll out some test uh, some pilot projects here, including at YVR here in Vancouver, rapid testing of passengers at airports. So I guess how would this work? So like right now, when you return to Canada on an international flight, you're expected to quarantine for fourteen days. If you take a rapid COVID test at the airport and you test negative, would you then not have to quarantine? Is that the deal? Um, that appears to be. I'm looking at WestJet's site right now. It has some details, and that's what it says, is that it, once you get your test back, and test results you know, tend to come back in as little as two days, um, that's sort of the test now. So I don't know if it'll be even more rapid, but it says we could come back within two days. Then you could go out. You still need to wear a mask in public. You're supposed to provide daily check-ins. I'm not sure with who. Um, and you have to avoid kind of large events. But fortunately, none of those are really happening right now, I guess. Um, and then you need to be tested again six or seven days after arriving in Canada to make sure that, you, I guess, the, the COVID hasn't come, you know, uh, you haven't, um, you don't have COVID symptoms or sort of a few days later, because sometimes it can take it's about five days for COVID to show up in somebody. And then after that, you know, you're sort of free to go. Um, but yeah. basically, yeah, after two days, it says you can then kind of go out freely as long as you're wearing a mask. Okay. Um, and that's... Yeah, it's, it's a game changer. It, it really is. It's an interesting concept, and I, I'm certain that the airlines are. It's probably one the airlines like, or maybe the airports would like to try and give people that confidence that maybe you can fly again, uh, you can travel again. You would not be facing a long quarantine if you agree to take a rapid COVID test, and if you test negative, you're you're good to go. Uh, it's it's an interesting di- sort of dynamics around this industry right now, Brian. And I I wonder about your thoughts on whether Canadians would be willing to go along with some sort of government assistance package for airlines and and how big how big of a priority do you think that is for the Justin Trudeau government like are the airlines sort of fall into that too big to fail category they don't want to see one of these airlines actually go down and sh- shut down and go bankrupt um it's a tough question like i think yes i don't think i think it's a bad look for the government if air canada shuts down, especially Air Canada, WestJet too, but WestJet is owned now by Onyx Corporation. They're huge. WestJet, they can pump more money into WestJet. I mean, if this lasts for two or three years, I think there's some trouble. Um, I think it's, yeah, bad if Air Canada fails. But, uh, you know, Air Canada's gone bankrupt before. Air Canada struggled mightily in the past, and they're still around. And um, I just, it's hard for me to believe that not Air Canada would completely disappear, that nobody would be there to fill the void. Um, and, and, and so and that makes me think, like, do they really need, um, you know, a bailout of, 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 you know, of an injection of cash? If it is this kind of low interest rate loan, we're going to reduce fees, we're going to make it easier for you to cut some costs, um, then yes, I see that as an advantage. If it's a direct investment, to me personally, it's, it seems like um, that's a bit of a risk because people aren't traveling. And what are you doing? You're having a zombie airlines that may, you know, eventually come back. But um, I, I think that the market forces um, maybe should be a play here, but I still don't think that's going to happen. I mean, the government will need to step in. It, it won't look good if Air Canada goes under. Brian, thanks for your take today. Thank you.